at a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Monday, July 3rd, 2023 edition, and yet we are on the cusp of a beautiful American Independence Day tomorrow. So I hope everyone has some fun plans and hope everyone stays safe. Now, it's worth noting that we have just completed the first two quarters of the year. And I'm Justin Klein, and I'm excited for this hour with you today to give you some data and perspective developed from more than 20 years of investment experience. And in today's podcast, I'm going to blend my comments with you, the listener, and your questions. You bring questions and topics to the table, and that means you are a vital part of this program. And we don't pre-screen our live calls. Instead, we take what you throw at us live and in real time and no hidden agenda just helping you take that next step in your journey towards financial freedom and typically that is a a road that sometimes you learn lessons the hard way sometimes you can learn lessons from people who've done it for a long period of time and and that's what we are here to do that's gonna be a mix of both everyone learns uh some lessons the hard way but we're going to encourage you to do a few things. Ignore emotions, which means political ideologies, uh, what your cousin, your neighbor, your brother are doing. All of those things need to be thrown out the window. It's about you and your journey and where you're starting and where you're headed and the market that we're in, not the market that you hope we should be in or the economy we should hope you should be in or the political environment you hope we should be in the markets don't care about what your belief systems are markets will do what they're going to do and so it's about refraining from chasing headlines and letting the mo- those emotions creep in focusing on the data that is in front of you and removing the barriers to making good decisions consistently It's not about one decision. It's not about one day, one week, one month, or even one year. It's about stringing these consistently back to back, avoiding the counterproductive habits that a lot of investors fall prey to. So I'm ready to tackle your questions. And I'm sure you have a lot on your mind on this holiday weekend. And the Invest Talk phone line never closes. It's 888-99-CHART. My main focus point today looks in the story fueling this question. What do supply cuts mean for oil investors? Saudi Arabia and Russia, the two world's largest, biggest, or largest, biggest, two of the world's biggest oil exporters, deepened oil cuts today and prices went up. And so we're going to dig into that story. Also, 
China is putting export curbs on a couple of materials that go into producing semiconductors. And this is an interesting story, mainly because it just continues to hit on the theme that we've been talking about really since COVID started, which is regionalization of, uh, of supply chains, a different global trade dynamics that uh, are likely to mean going forward over the next decade, it's not this freewheeling trade environment that we've been used to over the past 30 years. So we're going to look at that story. Also, in conjunction with that changing environment, you're starting to see some changes when it comes to mergers, specifically in the private equity space, uh, when it comes to government's oversight of mergers and maybe a bit more, uh, adding a bit more scrutiny to the M&A activity that happens both in public markets and private markets. And then lastly, if we have time, we're going to check in on the labor markets, both domestically and abroad, and give you some updates there. Okay. So that's what the, what's on the docket for me today. But most importantly, it's about you and your questions. And that means we have some voice bank questions in regards to closed end funds and Palo Alto Alto networks. And my perspective establishes an education overview of the U.S. economy from the colonial days to today. So this is all planned for you on today's podcast. And of course, your live calls as well at 888-99-CHART. Let's take a look at the market today. It was a very low volume, shortened uh, session. We closed at 1 p.m. Eastern time. So three hours cut short on the trading day today. But some notable moves here. Value definitely outperformed. You had small cap value up almost 1%, whereas large cap growth was down about 18 basis points. So uh, a little bit of mix. I've been saying this. You're starting to see that growth, the value over growth shift uh, start to take hold over the past month or so. And today, although in a, sh uh, a, a shortened trading day, there was certainly some undertones uh, there. And a lot of that has to do with oil prices being higher and obviously these trade concerns as well. So that was the market today. Not a whole lot you can glean from the fact that this is a uh, holiday shortened, but also that a lot of people are still on vacation, you know, going out of town in this long, long holiday weekend. Well, let's head over to our first voice bank question now. Yes, my name is Jeff from Iowa, and I just have a question about Zoom. I just want to know if right now, if, uh, you know, where it's sitting, if it would be a good buy or not. I did buy Zoom back about $109. I thought it was oversold at the time I, I bought it. But since then, it's dropped down, you know, at about 68. I mean, I don't know if it, right now it'd be a, a good buy or if I should just cut my losses and sell it off. All right. Thank you. Appreciate everything you guys do. All right. Looking at Zoom, and this is one of the darlings of COVID because they thought everybody and their mother was just going to use Zoom. It was the hot name when everybody was working from home, and a lot of people still are, but the market started to realize, and I said this a couple of years ago, that video conferencing is not really a special sauce. It's been, it's, there's many applications out there that can do that. Zoom might do it well, but most other 
uh, applications do it equally well. And a lot of times it's about what integrates with uh, different systems in today's world and in, in the SaaS world. That's what really Zoom is, is the software as a service. Uh, I know here in the business community, you know, we're, we're in the business community. We, we use GoTo, uh, GoTo Connect because that ties in with our phone systems and, you know, our other pieces of software. And so that's what it's really all about. The actual functionality of Zoom, once again, not a whole lot different. So when people were valuing this at hundreds of times forward-looking earnings, it was pretty clear it was drastically overvalued. And that's why it's gone from almost $600 per share back in the fall of 2020 to now to $68 per share So at the close today. So down over 90%. And now at least it's trading at reasonable levels, shall you, I guess you could say. Uh, but you're talking about free cash for about a billion dollars, enterprise value 14 billion. So no debt, that's a positive. And what are they doing with that cash? They are, they're not buying back shares, which is interesting. You would think they would at these levels because I do think it's finally at a reasonable price. But the only issue for me is that the return on assets, return on equity continues to power lower. Uh, their business continues to weaken. Their cash flow operations continues to decelerate. And it's really about, in my mind, uh, businesses are starting to realize that you don't need to keep Zoom. You know, there's layoffs. You maybe don't need as many Zoom seats. And maybe you do switch your video conferencing somewhere else. It's basically a commodity, commodity business uh, overall. Once again, unless you get into some sort of ecosystem and Zoom doesn't really have that quite yet. So I still don't think it is cheap. It's reasonable, but it's not cheap. And typically these pendulums continue to swing more, more extreme, right? From one side trading at uh, hundreds of times forward earnings. And now it's at about mid-teens. It's probably going to continue to go lower and the technical say so as well. So uh, I would cut your losses. I would move on. I think there are much better businesses to own than Zoom. All right. Now we're going to a quick break. Please remember that you can call anytime and leave your question on the Invest Talk Voice Bank. And if you're listening via the live stream or on AM 1220 in Silicon Valley, you can call right now at 888-99-CHART. When listener questions are played on the Invest Talk podcast, how do you guys determine a value stock? The caller voices are amplified many thousands of times. Just wanted to get your opinion on JP Morgan and BAC. How do you see this uh, looking forward? I'm 25 years old and have a question about retirement funds. And the unbiased answers from Justin Klein. That's why it's trading so cheap because there's a lot of regulatory risk. And Steve Peasley. I, I kind of like it here. If I was going to buy Tyson food, this is where I'd buy it. Benefit the entire Invest Talk community. Thank you for what you guys do. That's why 24 7, rain or shine, no matter how simple or how complex, your questions make a difference. Symbol BKE, what's your outlook? And Invest Talk is made better by the power of you. So don't forget to call 888 99CHART. One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. 
Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888-99-CHART. Now, my focus point looks in the story fueling this question. What do supply cuts mean for oil investors? And I've been saying for a while now, we've, we've, we're going through this choppy period uh, in oil prices really over the past year since last summer. And, but the oil stocks continue to kind of hang in there, you know, consolidate sideways, and they still are producing strong profits. Now, this has been an environment where the global economy continues to slow, not in a recessionary environment, but still slowing from an overstimulated level. We all kind of realized that with what inflation was doing early last year uh, and late the year before. And what you're seeing from the big oil exporters is that they don't want to see oil go back into the 40s and 50s again. And they're pretty locked in, especially when it comes to their budgets, which a lot of them are trying to wean themselves off of oil revenue and diversify their economy a, a bit more. Saudi Arabia is uh, the, the main example of that. But in the meantime, they need oil prices relatively robust. And you know, oil is priced at the margins. So even modest cuts can have large impacts. And today, Saudi Arabia and Russia, the two biggest oil exporters, exporters in the world, said that they're going to cut about a million barrels uh, by Saudi Arabia and 500 barrels in Russia per day in the month of August. Now, this is more of an extension from Saudi Arabia, and uh, they aren't already uh, had this cut, but they're extending it another month, and they, and they basically said this could go beyond August, right? It was, extend, it was expected to end in July this month, and now it's being extended to August, could go even further. And these cuts amount to about 1.5% of global supply. And add on top of that, company like Alge- a country like Algeria said it would cut output by an extra 20,000 barrels from August 1st to the 31st to kind of support their OPEC brethren, Saudi Arabia and Russia. And OPEC plus in total pumps about 40% of the world's crude oil. And they've already have about 3.6 million barrel uh, cuts, amounting to about 3.6% of global demand, about 100 million barrel uh, daily demand in for oil. And OPEC cut about 2 million last year, then 1.6 million in April. And now they're extending that to uh, ne- end of next year. So all this means is that the tight supply dynamics across the world are likely to continue to get to, to go further. So I, I really think this is uh, another shot across the bow that, hey, the OPEC doesn't want it to go too much further, these cuts to be uh, to, to the price cuts uh, to go uh, too much further. They want to get oil back to $100 per barrel. And I think they get it there sometime later this year or next year. Now we're heading into a break. I welcome your finance and investment questions now. No question is too simple or too complex. You can call Best Talk now at 888 chart The stock market is constantly changing, and serious investors know that they need to modify their portfolio assets to fit the times. And now, with more than 50 million downloads, 
Justin Klein and Steve Peasley reaffirm their commitment to providing unbiased finance and investment guidance here on Investalk. 888-99-CHART. Hi there, my name is Gaurav and my question is about Palo Alto Networks, stock ticker PANW. I have a, a holding in this asset for, it's done fairly well. I was just wondering what your opinion is on future performance of the stock and if it's continue to hold the stock or sell it and kind of take the benefits that uh, I've gained over the years. Thank you. All right. So this is Palo Alto Networks, a $77 billion market cap, no debt on its balance sheet. That's good. No dividend, but earnings continue to power higher, expected to make $3.58 this year after $2.52 last year and $2.05 the year before, and so it's like $4.37 next year. So the growth is very strong. Earnings, our revenue growth is slowing into the mid-20s from the mid-30s a year ago. So there is some it's, it's hard to continue to grow that much over a long period of time. It's just law of large numbers, right? Because if you want to maintain the same amount of growth in nominal terms, you have to grow even more each and every year. And that's just uh, difficult to do. Now, Palo Alto Net- Networks is a very good company, return equity right around 35%. Uh, but it had been negative for a long period of time. And now they're kind of turning on the profitability spigot, it looks like. And the question is, what? What type of growth can they really squeeze out, um, even if uh, revenue growth uh, is slowing? Now, free cash flow is at all-time high, $2.7 billion. But once again, it's a $78 billion market cap. So you're talking about a 3% free cash flow yield. That's pretty low. It's trading at about 13 times price of sales. I would say over 10 is, is pretty expensive. Uh, and the gro- once again, the growth side of the market continues to, to slow uh, and today's a good example. Palo Alto Networks was down slightly while the broader market was up slightly. So I would say this is a good time to trim. It's expensive. You've made a lot of money. It's overbought on the charts. And it's not one or the other. A lot of times it's let me just bring it back down to a reasonable allocation. When you do so well in a particular name, you know the, the old saying, my, it's one of my favorite sayings from my grandfather, which was, no tree grows the sky. And there's always a, a valuation that is too much. Uh, and you have to play the odds here. And the odds are that this is too expensive long-term. Now, could it continue up? Absolutely. The technicals are fine. The business is fine. As long as the market is letting multiples expand, then you know the, it could continue to go up. But at these prices, this is a good time to be trimming your position and maybe have a trailing stop, right? From a technical perspective on a daily chart, it is, I would say the 50 day moving average would be, I actually say the 100 day moving average would probably be where I would worry that this is going to majorly roll over if it broke that. Right now it's down around $200 per share, it's at 254. So I think you have a, a bit of room there, but I would use this to trim your position and have that stop for the rest of it at the 100 day moving average. Just, and uh, a lot of people, Remember, the world is in gray areas. You know, we, we try to get all black and white. I want to buy it or I want to sell it. There is other worlds, you know, just like in politics, right? A lot of people get bogged down in left or right. The older I know for me, the older I get, I realize the world operates in gray areas. 
not everything is perfect. Not everything is amazing and not everything is terrible. There's pros and cons to it all. And so that middle ground oftentimes is where you should be. Okay. Now let's uh, pivot over to what's happening in the semiconductor space. And today China hit back on the U.S. semiconductor restrictions by trying to prevent exports of two key metals that go into chip making and communication equipment more broadly. And this is gallium and germanium. And what they're saying is that exports will have to apply to the Ministry of, uh, of Customs for permits beginning in August. And both of these materials can form alternatives to traditional Silicon Valley or si Silicon wafers in certain applications, mainly military and communications equipment. And this is coming just days after ASML, a Netherlands um, chip equipment maker, one of the largest out there, they are saying they're not gonna send dozens of their immersion lithography machines to China because of these Western kind of blockades and, and restrictions on exports to China. And this comes on the heels of Washington blocking most advanced chips needed for artificial intelligence from being sold to China. And we, the U.S. continues to weigh more limits on AI chips made by NVIDIA and AMD uh, to China. Now, China is the world's largest producer of gallium and germanium, according to the U.S. Geological Survey. So this could be a big problem if you're trying to produce certain types of chips, mainly ones that offer faster operations with lower power consumption. Uh, these are ones that are, that are used in... 5G base stations and electric vehicle chargers and radar systems, uh, wireless communications, lasers, Germ that's gall gallium uh, are, made, are used to make those. Germanium is used to make uh, 5G uh, products, uh, fiber optic cables, solar panels, LEDs. So clearly these are important materials. It's not the end of the world. It can be sourced elsewhere, but obviously this uh, will make things cost more. And this goes back to that inflation dynamic that likely is entrenched for a period of time. Now, tomorrow is July 4th, a market holiday, so we've put together a fresh compilation show, Best of Caller Questions. So take a look at that. That will get posted tomorrow over on investtalk.com and your favorite pod podcast platform. Now, we're heading into a break, but I'm ready for your calls at 888-99-CHART. Let's say you've been thinking about learning a new language. Okay, why? I mean, how would it come in handy? And where would you want to use it? Could it be that you have an upcoming international trip? Or maybe you want to connect with family members or friends from a different culture. I think you should know about Rosetta Stone. With millions of users, it's been the world's most trusted language learning program for 30 years. Rosetta Stone is available on your desktop or as an app with audio companion and the ability to download lessons offline. Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It has a built-in, patented speech recognition engine called True Accent. So as you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you pronounce words. With Rosetta Stone, you pick up a language naturally. First with words, then phrases, then sentences. It's an intuitive process designed for long-term retention. You really learn to speak, listen, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone is an amazing value. So your special skill set is within easy reach. You know you want to do this. So 
Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, InvestTalk listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off now at rosettastone.com today. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's attack resistance platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. Each day, InvestTalk listeners submit their finance and investment questions via phone or email. Would you like your question to be put near the top of the list? Just take a minute or two to leave a review and rating for InvestTalk at iTunes. And be sure to include a brief question with your iTunes review comments. I got a question about CEFs, closed-end funds, uh, in particular GLV. George Lima Victor. I was hoping you guys can shed some light on this matter. I've seen some posts online and articles on the Forbes magazine, you know, talking about, you know, invest $450,000 in CEFs and get a return of $4,500 a month. And I wanted to see if there's any truth to this matter. Your input is appreciated, and I'll look forward to your responses on the next podcast. Thank you so much. Here, Charles from Irvine. Thanks. All right. I love this call because a lot of people are chasing the yields out of these closed-end funds. And for GLV, that comes in at right about 13%. 13%. However, however, there is a large caveat to this. And mainly this has to do with what is called return of capital. So you may get a certain uh, yield, uh, but when times are tough for the underlying assets that they own, not only does that dividend get cut, but oftentimes they, it's not actually income to you. It is what is called return of capital, meaning that they're selling assets in order for you to pay you your dividend. 
Now, GLV is a perfect example. This is a name that ha- continues to go down. Uh, because why? Why? Let's, let's start off with why. What do they own? Well, they own a mix of assets, okay? They own some equities. They own some fixed income. They own a lot of different things. But the price of GLV continues to sink. It peaked out in mid-2021, right around $12 per share. Now it's at $5.60. Now you continue to get that payout. I'm not going to call it income because only part of it is income. And for a long period of time, you're getting $0.09 per month. But from, let's see. July of last year to October of last year, those four months, it wasn't actually income. It was money that was being returned to you. Okay. So while your principal is going down, you're getting in your brokerage account what looks like income to you. But in reality, all they're doing is selling assets. And so you hold it, and the price of the underlying asset, the GLV, continues to go down, down over 50% over the last year. And what they're doing is they're just giving you your own money back. So it looks like you're getting 12 or 13% if you're calculating what is being deposited into your bank or into your brokerage account. But that's not reality because you're never going to get back to that $12 per share that it was trading back in 2021. Because those assets, even though if they've, even though they may have might have gone down since 2021, they're no longer in there to rebound because they've sold it in order to quote unquote pay you a dividend. It's not a dividend. It's your own money back. It's your own money back. So this goes back to understand what you own. Don't just look at that headline number. But if you look it up on Yahoo Finance or uh, any other service, you're going to see a 12.8% dividend. But this is why I love I love Morningstar. Morningstar is great. I believe this data is free. I, I, we pay for, obviously, the, the deeper research. But <clears throat> I can head over to the performance tab and I can dig into this. You just dig into distributions and it shows you. How much of the total is return of capital, long-term gains, short-term gains, and income? So you know exactly what you're getting. And it's pretty easy to know by looking at the portfolio that 12.8% is not realistic. Why? Most of their assets are equities. What equities are yielding 12%? and And they employ leverage as well on top of this. But even if you have some sort of leverage, you're not getting 12.8% on equities. Even on bonds, it's difficult. Even this a higher interest rate environment. So you're probably looking at some headline that is misleading and per usual, do a deeper dive. Understand anytime something is paying you a quote unquote income, that needs to come from somewhere that is sustainable. Whether that's a government paying you, whether that is a corporation paying you, municipal government, maybe in muni bonds, whatever it is, it needs to be from a sound source. And 
sorry, losing your principal and never be able to actually get that principal back completely isn't enough to, 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 to get that 12.8% yield because guess what? You're down over 50% on your principal over the last two years and great, you got 24% in yield over that time. That means you've lost 25% in two years. Doesn't sound like a good deal to me. Now, my perspective established a high-level overview of the historical aspects of the U.S. economy. And for investors and consumers, the relative health of our economy is extremely important for investing success and obviously lifestyle quality. Now, first, let me define in simple terms what, it mean, what I mean by our economic history. Now, the economic history of the United States is about the characteristics of and the important development in the economy over time. And even casual understanding requires that the emphasis needs to be on productivity and economic performance, right? It's about how does the economy, how many jobs are being created, what type of growth do we have, and most importantly, the productivity of the economy, meaning, you know, what is the output that we get per hour of work? And we would have also to explain how the economy was affected by new technologies, the change in size in various sectors, and the effects of legislation and government policy. Now, zooming out to a high-level view, we should talk about the economy from the colonial era all the way to present. Now, prior to the European colonial conquest of North America, there were indigenous communities with varied economic structures. Some were communities with, that were just agrarian, right? Others were hunter and gatherers and foragers. And then the colonial economy was char characterized by abundance of land, natural resources, and several and severe scarcity of labor because there weren't many people with a, a lot of traditional education at that time. And the colonial economy of what would become the United States was pre-industrial, primarily characterized by subsistence farming. And farm households were engaged in handy... Uh, Handicraft production, mostly for home consumption, goods, gold, things like that. From 1700 to 1774, the output of the 13 colonies increased 12-fold, giving the, the economy about, a 30, about the 30% of the size of Britain as a whole around the time of independence. Now, this evolved into a market economy and was based on extracting and processing natural resources, agricultural products for local consumption, mining, uh, sawmills, exports of agricultural products, and the largest non-agricultural shipment was shipbuilding, which was from uh, was from five to twenty percent of total employment. So shipbuilding was 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 pretty big. Now, let's go to the American Revolution, 1775, 1783. Obviously, a lot about individual liberties, economic entrepreneurship, all of that. Now, it wasn't perfect to start. Congress and the American states had no end of difficulty financing the war. In 1775, there were at most $12 million in gold in the, in the colonies and not nearly enough to cover existing transactions, let alone an entire war. And the Constitution of the United States adopted in 1787 established that the entire nation was unified or common market with no internal tariffs or taxes on interstate commerce. I think this is very underrated, very underrated aspect of the Constitution that helped us grow because of that kind of free trade and be able to have different states that have different strengths, different resources, different amount of people, and they could, you know, 
create an economy that fit not only uh, their their own people, but those surrounding states that they could export to as well. And that helped with productivity. Talked about productivity at the top. Now, the pre-industrial U.S. was uh, the first third of the 1900, 19th century, so 1800s. Most people lived on farms, produced much uh, that they consumed. And gradually, once we get to the back half of the 1800s, you had railroads, telegraph, machinery, factories that created the industrial economy. And growth and innovation in the U.S. went on and on throughout the Civil War, World War I, even through the stock market crash of 1929. And we had the electrification that became the most important driver of economic growth in the early 20th century. Once again, going back to productivity, this technology that really drove the improvement in the economy. Now, these this revolutionary electric-powered factory was created the, the highest productivity growth in manufacturing in our history. And it made us very unique. A lot of complex and lots of variables, but if you ask most scholars what was the most important event in American history, it was really... You know, they talk about the 1929 and the Great Depression. I would say it's actually the Industrial Revolution and the electrification of uh, America. Now, what are the key reasons why America has been so robust? Now, the first is GDP per capita generally sits at about the top 5% of the world. We have abundant capital and credit markets. That's very helpful to get business going, to keep them going, to expand businesses. And so there's a lot of a, a lot of access to that. And businesses operate efficiently and without the degree of corruption that you often see elsewhere. Not to say there isn't corruption in the U.S. There obviously is. There's obviously problems at the very top and in local governments, but it's a lot less than you see in most other countries. And you have a population that is inventive. We have a very strong entrepreneurial culture, and that helps with building large companies like Google and, you know, the, the, the big names that, that dominate uh, the, the, the markets. Uh, and you think of the largest names in the world, almost all of them are here in the U.S. And you have legal and contractual obligations that are kept and enforced. That's a big part of it, making sure that when there is a, a contract signed that is enforceable and that you have some certainty to go out and right invest in production of a, a good or service and not worry that whoever signed that contract is going to renege on it, right? Now, I've only scratched the surface, but at least you have a compact overview of the American economy and from the early days until today, and one of the most underappreciated aspects of our economy, the diversity of it. Not talking about people, although that's a, certainly a strength, but you know we're not relying on one sector, right? Think of Russia and how they're reliant on oil exports and, 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 and resource exports. Okay, Saudi Arabia, same thing. Uh, China, we're very reliant on manufacturing. So while we have some weaknesses, overall, we're pretty diverse. And I think that is the strongest part of our, our economy as a whole. I right. hope that gave you a great overview. Now, let's pivot over to... Oh, we're going to do a voicemail. Hi, Justin or Steve. I'm calling today about some home builder stocks, Quality Group and TriPoint Homes, Super Simple, PHM, and TPH. And thanks to you guys, I've 
own these stocks and companies, and they've done pretty well for me. Um, they've been hitting 52 weeks highs the last couple of weeks, but I've noticed that I started to see a lot of articles about them, and they're kind of the talk of the town. And one thing I learned from you guys is that once that starts happening, it's time to kind of evaluate your positions and see if it's time to get out or trim. So I just wanted to ask, if you guys still own these stocks, what do you plan on doing with them? Are you planning on trimming? You know, what are some signs to look out for before we're getting out? And if you still think these shares and these stocks are are fair value, or what do you think is a fair value for these companies? Uh, again, thank you for pointing our eyes towards this sector, and I really appreciate any insight. All right, we'll look at these names, Pulte and TriPoint, and we have owned Pulte for a while. We were buying it in the low 40s, high 30s last year and you know everyone was talking about higher interest rates and how they were going to crash the housing market and everyone had PTSD from 08 and I talked many times for the past year that you know this is a different environment and and the fact that these home builders are their market share of homes sold has doubled even though overall their the, the amount of sales has been cut in half because of higher interest rates they're able to take market share because they can buy points and uh, for, for their buyers and get them mortgages at four and a half, five percent. When prevailing market, you're getting six and a half, seven percent. And so they've been able to really take that that market share and, and, and supply the home buyers that, that still want to buy a home to and be able to afford them. Um, and they're also op they were operating at a very high margin, and much higher than they had been in a long period of time. And so, yeah, their margins were shrinking, but they were going back to longer term averages, and that's why we had we had held uh, Pulte for so long. Now, I will say we've recently begun to trim it and cut it from uh, different strategies because we do think it is uh, a bit expensive at these levels. Uh, and so, this is a time where I would trim. I wouldn't necessarily get out, kind of what I talked about uh, to a caller earlier in the show, which is trim it back to your original position and have a tight stop. With Pulte, it's the 50-day moving average. It found support there back in March and easily held that and continues to just grind higher. So this is a time where you, you trim it a little bit and you watch any technical breakdown. So And so far, we're still not seeing any. So uh, I wouldn't be too quick to get rid of it all. Now, this is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein. We have one goal here to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom. And our work continues after this final break. So, get your questions in now at 888 chart. Justin Klein is here and ready to take your calls live. Invest Talk, 888 chart. Yes, this is Mike in Texas. I have a question about. Berkshire Hathaway B shares. Is it a good investment to buy into Berkshire at this point or any point, or is it better to look at the individual holdings and look at those as a possible investment? I look forward to your, hearing your answer. Thanks. Well, the majority of Berkshire Hathaway isn't isn't investable. You can't go invest it, right? These are held within Berkshire themselves. Think of Geico. It's on a publicly traded company. They bought Burlington Northern, Santa Fe Railroad. They have their own utility and energy distribution business. They have manufacturing businesses, services, retail operations, uh, precision cast parts, Clayton Homes. They, they have a very 
this is clearly a conglomerate. I would call it a, a finance and industrial conglomerate in many ways. And historically, it's run very well. Uh, yes, they do invest. Warren does buy publicly traded companies like Apple to hold with their cash. And, and you know, he makes investments like that. But the vast majority of the profits and, and gains from this business are those non publicly traded businesses that they've acquired throughout the years. So if you want access to that, you just have to buy Berkshire. And once again, good business, good businesses, let's just say that longer term return on equity is typically in the in the mid to high teens. Now, recently, it's been pretty meager and volatile. Uh, but long term, you know, it's pretty solid. Now, it's not the best performing business out there. But if you want to basically a, a value conglomerate, that's what I, I look at it as. At least most of the, these aren't growth businesses. These aren't exciting businesses. These are businesses that have nice economic moats, meaning they have a strong, uh, they have a strong, strong protections, whether that's IP protections or good brands or distribution or whatever that is, that is consistently producing profits and cash flow for, uh, for Berkshire and the larger parent company. So that's the positive. That's the type of business I want to own. You get diversity there. Uh, so I look at it as kind of a value, maybe even a mutual fund, you should call it. Uh, so n no problem owning it, uh, but you can't get access to the vast majority of what Berkshire is without just owning Berkshire. All right, thanks for the call. Now, lastly, let's touch on some increased scrutiny coming out of Lena Khan and the FTC. She is the FTC chair, and she said in a statement that uh, talking about a recent form called the Heart Scoot Rodino form, and this is a form that companies fill out to notify the FTC and the Department of Justice about certain deals, M&A activity that exceeds certain, certain thresholds. And this would force a lot of private equity firms to disclose significantly more information in the early parts of a transaction that may lead to more deals getting blocked. And many agent or the agency predicts that this will add a hundred or more hours the amount of time that companies will need to prepare the prepare the form uh, so that they can scrutinize these deals. And Lena Khan says the information currently collected by the HSR form is insufficient for our teams to determine in the initial 30 days whether a proposed deal may violate the antitrust laws. And you're going to see this more and more. It's pretty clear that this administration wants to cut down on monopolies and industries being co-opted by just a handful of entities. And that's it, it happens with large public companies, but it happens even more with these private equity firms. They dominate certain niche markets, and that's really what it looks like they are trying to target. And a lot of private equity firms do this, right? They buy up a certain number of vet clinics or uh, plastic surgery, surgery facilities or uh, this happens a lot in the medical uh, business, uh, dentists, uh, things like that. And they combine them and they try to streamline their businesses and extract better value out of them. And so what they're trying to prevent is these small niche industries being dominated by 
just one private equity firm. They also trying to prevent uh, private equities from sitting on too many boards of too many companies within the same industry. And so you're going to see this more and more. It's going to make private equity firms uh, have more trouble maneuvering in this environment and ultimately digging out of a lot of the holes that they've built for themselves by buying companies at very extreme valuations uh, and relying on cheap financing. And uh, I think this is another shot across the bow for uh, large businesses, uh, whether public or private, and trying to monopolize uh, a particular sector. So very interesting. I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening. We encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And tomorrow is July 4th. It is a market holiday. We put a fresh compilation show out for you, the Best of Caller Question podcast. So take a look at that. And I hope all of you have a wonderful and safe holiday tomorrow. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Enjoy your holiday downtime. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461.